Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We started a series a couple of weeks back, three weeks back, I guess, that uh, we have uh, entitled Biblical Prosperity. This is a subject that the Lord really put on my heart to teach. I've, I've taught uh, a number of things uh, about the subject of prosperity throughout the course of the, the church, the almost 30 years of the church now. And, uh, and, and each time it seems that the Lord directs me to approach it from a little different angle. Um, I, we're doing so this time as well. But um, um, we want to, well, I'm just trying to, I'm endeavoring to follow the Holy Ghost on, uh, uh, from service to service on this thing. I, I know kind of a, a general overview of what I want it to produce in, uh, in each of us. But, uh, but I'm trusting the Holy Ghost to give me utterance from service to service to, uh, to speak just the right things, to, to tweak our, our believing and our thinking in some of these areas rather than just trying to provide new information to, uh, uh, to somebody for the sake of information. So uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is Moses. The whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address, basically. Uh, he uh, is telling. He knows that he's going off the scene. He knows that Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. Forty years late, forty years later than God wanted them to go in, but uh, they failed to go in because of their unbelief. And uh, Moses knows that he's not going in, but that Joshua is going to be the one that's going to take his place and lead them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And so Moses spends a great deal of time talking to the people about what they're going to find, what they're going to encounter, what to do when they encounter it, and so forth. And uh, chapter 28 is kind of the synopsis. It's kind of the summary of, uh, of things that he said before. We'll look at some of those things that he said before to clarify. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he kind of sums up the whole thing. He says, beginning in verse 1, And it shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. You know how many times that's in the Bible? A lot. It shall come to pass. We ought to pay particular attention to the things that God says or inspires somebody else to say that shall come to pass. Notice what he said. And it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. Notice the word overtake. Overtake is a, is a word that means catch you from behind. And all of these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Now he's going to summarize what those blessings are. Blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. He knows the people are going to divide the land uh, among themselves, the 12 tribes, and some will, be, uh, will, will live in, dwell in cities, maybe the cities that they take over. Uh, when they conquer the promised land, maybe new cities that they build. Others will live in a rural farm setting. But he says, no matter where you live, no matter what, uh, what your choice, your life choice is, as far as career or path or whatever, you can expect the blessing of God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of the body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Notice God's talking about increase. Blessed shall be your basket and your store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but, but coming in and going out, that's about the only thing you can do. I mean, you're either coming in or going out. 
He's talking about a full-time blessing, isn't he? The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. And in the fruit of thy body. And in the fruit of thy cattle. And in the fruit of thy ground. In the land where the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. And notice he's doubling up and talking about some of the same things again. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give rain unto thy land in his season. And to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. Doesn't mean it's wrong to, to borrow. It means you won't have to. If it's wrong to borrow, it would be wrong to lend, wouldn't it? You'd be contributing to somebody else's sin. He's saying, I'll bless you in such a manner that you won't have to look to somebody else as your source. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only. And thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. Now turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because there are some, th- some things in, uh, in some of the earlier chapters that are enumerated and identified specifically rather than the, the summation that uh, Moses gives them in chapter 28. Let's start reading in verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass. There's that phrase again. It shall come to pass. You've got God's guarantee on some stuff, folks. We need to recognize that. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken unto the judgments, these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee his covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee. Notice loving thee is contingent on the keeping of the word. Remember, Jesus said, the man that loves me is the man that keeps my word. God hadn't changed from Old Testament to New Testament. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb, that's your children, and the fruit of thy land, your corn and your wine and your oil, the increase of your kind and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give them. Now, all those things he's talking about, your your corn and your wine and your oil and the increase of your sheep and so forth that's all having to do with the blessing i will bless you in all these things he's saying thou shalt be blessed above all people there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle and the lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases upon thee which thou knowest I'm sorry, I skipped some of it. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. If you look up those words, it's not really put in a causative sense. It means allow. God won't allow the things that came on the Egyptians to come on them. Egypt is a symbol or a type of the world. He's saying that my people that hearken unto my word and walk according to my commandments shall be free from the sickness and disease of the earth. Verse 16, and thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. 
Thine eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that that will be a snare unto thee. Now skip with me over to chapter 8. Moses' farewell address has a lot to do with the blessing of God. Let's start reading in verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not, forgetting, in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when the herds and the flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, folks, I say this nearly every time I read it, but I I just can't hardly not say it. All this stuff that God's talking about is going to happen must be okay with him. Must be okay for your silver and gold to multiply. Must be okay to dwell in goodly houses, build goodly houses, and dwell therein. It must be okay for all this stuff that he said, be careful that you don't forget him when this stuff happens. He's not saying it's not my will for any of this stuff to take place. He's saying it's not my will for you to forget me when it does. Verse 17. So the same warning, beware that you don't forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. And thou shalt say in thine heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Don't start thinking that you're the one that did this. Now, let me stop there long enough. What would cause them to think that they did? It's an honest question. I mean, because if it's, if it's not a legitimate concern, why is God warning them about it? Why would they possibly think that their might and their power had gotten them this wealth? Because God said, I'll bless everything you do. If everything you do turns to gold, so to speak, if everything you do turns into a success, if everything you do works like magic as far as success is concerned, Isn't that ground for the devil to say, boy, aren't you something? I don't see too many people that the devil's tempting with, boy, are you something that don't have anything. The homeless guy living under the bridge is not tempted of the devil that your might and your power has got you all of this that you see. He's saying that the blessing of God will be so great and so extensive, so all-inclusive, that the devil's going to try to make you think that it's you. Think about the condition that would have to exist for you to think it was you. You'd have to succeed and multiply pretty well, wouldn't you? So he says, watch out. Don't let yourself say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. 
that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. That last phrase of the of verse 18 literally means just like I spoke to Abraham and promised it to him, the same promise is yours. Now you might want to look over to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14. Because so much of the church world say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, why are you talking about the Old Testament? That's stuff that belongs to the Jews. Well, it does belong to the Jews. But does it only belong to the Jews? That's the question. The Jews have proved most of this out in their lives through the history of the, of their, the people, the descendants, natural descendants of Abraham. But does it just belong to them? Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, the curse of the law is identified in the last, uh, starting with about verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28 all the way down through verse 62, 63, somewhere like that, however many verses are in, left in the chapter. And he goes into specifics about if you don't obey, this curse will come upon you. If you've turned away from the word, this curse will come upon you and this curse will come upon you and so forth. So where it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, he's saying Christ has redeemed us from the bad stuff that was pronounced on Israel if they did not keep the word of God. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now notice verse 14, Galatians 3, 14. Here's the reason why he did that. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Now, everything we just read in Deuteronomy is the blessing of Abraham. So you can't get any clearer statement in Scripture that these promises that we just read and many, many others, we're just picking out the ones that have to do with the subject of our discussion, subject of prosperity. But all of these things that we read, all of these scriptures that we read about God will increase you, your children and your, your goods and make you plenteous in goods and your silver and your gold and your cattle and your, the work of your hands and all these things. That's all the blessing of Abraham. Now we would have to assume that the same warning is, is applicable to us if the blessing is too, wouldn't we? We've got to make sure that we don't think that it's us that's doing it. But I don't see too many people operating the kind of success that are really tempted with that. I see people getting lifted up and thinking it's them in other areas. But not so much in the area of finances and prosperity. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. And that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, he's saying Jesus died for us for two reasons. One, so that the Spirit of God could live on the inside of us. We could be born again, recreated in the image of God through the new birth. But so that while we're here too, the blessing of Abraham, all the financial and physical and material blessings that God promised Abraham through Moses would be ours too. Now, folks, I think it's fair to say that I'm kind of a critical thinker. That doesn't mean I'm always critical about things that I see, but what I mean by that is it's not, just, it's not enough for me to just see something is. I want to know the hows and the whys. And to be perfectly honest with you, in this particular area, the area of finances, I see a lot greater success that the Jews are living in under a covenant that doesn't even exist anymore and a covenant that they're not even keeping. See, a part of the covenant, uh, part of the old covenant was the, the sacrificial lamb, the day of atonement and the, the other sacrifices that were required of Israel. Well, nobody's been making a sacrifice since 70 A.D. 
because you can't make it without there being a temple. And the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So they're operating in the blessing of Abraham, the material blessing of Abraham, to a great degree. They, meaning the Jews, are operating in the material blessing of Abraham to a great degree, and they're not even keeping the covenant. Yet you look at most of the church. I see churches all around the world that are struggling. I've got pastor friends that are scrimping and and scratching to get every little dime they can get to either make payroll or, or fund the projects that they've got on their hearts that they believe God has told them to do. Why is it that the Jews seem to operate in a greater level or measure of the blessing of Abraham than the church does when the Bible says the church has the same blessing and even a greater blessing? We've got the spiritual blessing attached to it. I want to know why. Don't you? I see scriptures where it says that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. And I want to know when. I mean, it's great to know that that's in there, but I want to know when. Now, some people, I've had some people respond and say, well, that's going to happen in the millennium. Well, who's going to care then? Jesus is going to be ruling with a rod of iron. The lion and the lamb are going to be laying down together. And Jesus is just going to be waiting for somebody to step out of line. Who cares about the wealth of the wicked then? There's only one time in the history of of mankind that I care about uh, a greater wealth being transferred into the hands of of the people of God. And that's before Jesus comes back. Because the only thing I want the wealth of the wicked for is to reach the wicked to bring them into the kingdom of God. And folks, that takes money. Money's not the only ingredient. You can have all the money in the world without the the leading or the direction or the unction of the Holy Ghost. You wouldn't get anything done. But you can have the plans of God laid out in front of you and have the the unction of the Holy Ghost and the anointing to do it and not have the funds. You can't get anywhere. Now, I believe that we need to be honest with ourselves. Me included. I'm not pointing fingers or throwing rocks at anybody else. But I believe we need to be honest with ourselves. If something is wrong in this, this situation, it, there's only a couple of possibilities. Either number one, the Bible's a lie. I'll discard that one right out of hand. I know that's not the one. Or number two, something is messing up with the way that it's being operated. Now, I know that God can't mess up on his, on his end. So it's got to be something on our end, meaning the church. Now, here's what I know in my experience through the things that I've learned from others and through my own experience, and that is this. Faith is the only way, the only way, the exclusive means whereby you receive anything and everything from God. And I know this. I know that if you're believing wrong about what Jesus has already purchased for us, for you as an individual or us as a, as a family, then it doesn't matter that we know that the Scripture says it. Because God doesn't honor what we know the Scripture says. He honors what we believe or fail to believe. For example, in the area of healing, if somebody does not believe that Jesus purchased their healing for them on the cross at the same time He died for our sins, then I don't care what you do, you're not going to get them healed. I know that's not the way a lot of people want it. 
A lot of people just want to throw it over on God and say, well, if it's the will of God, then he'll just make it happen. Well, if it was the will of God, it is the will of God for everybody to be saved. Why didn't he just make that happen? Because he leaves it up to man to choose. And man makes his choice by faith, by believing. So since faith is the only way that you receive the blessings of God, faith is the only way that you would receive prosperity, then there's got to be something wrong with our believing. Now what causes us to believe wrong? Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking causes wrong believing every time. So there's something about this that we as the church have a wrong mindset about. Well, okay, let's examine what we think. And therefore, we can identify what we believe. What is the modern-day church? Now, now, when I say modern-day church, you realize I'm just talking about a very thin slice of the pie. Because most of the modern-day church doesn't even believe that prosperity is a part of what Jesus purchased. Most of the church doesn't believe that these promises and scriptures that we read in in, uh, Deuteronomy, as well as any uh, number of others that we could pull out, having to do with financial provision, are a part of God's will for the church, these only belong, in their thinking, these only belong to the the people of Israel and not to us. They ignore some of the scriptures like what we just referred to over in Galatians chapter 3. So when I talk about our believing, I'm talking about the ones that, that, that do believe that God wants to bless us and provide for us materially and financially. What do we think? What do we preach? What's the number one way that you would identify, and I really want you to think about this, What's the number one way that you've heard that prosperity comes through? One word should pop in your mind. Giving. That's what we teach. Give and it'll be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, shall be given unto your bosom. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I'll not open the windows of heaven unto you and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Now, folks, I got to tell you, I believe the blessing of the tithe is the blessing of Abraham. That's just me. You judge it for yourself. But a blessing that there's not room enough to receive sounds a lot like these scriptures that enumerate, I'll bless you with your, in your fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, bless you coming in and going out and so on and so forth, your flocks and your herds, silver and gold and, and all the other things that you mentioned. I believe that's the, the blessing of the tithe. Now, that may not be all of it. I believe God's bigger than anything we could imagine him to be. But it would have to be somewhere associated with it, wouldn't it? So how do we teach, we meaning the church that believes in prosperity, how do we teach that prosperity comes? By giving. Just give and give and give and give and give. Just give and give and give and give and give. Just give some more and then give some more. Don't be weary and well-doing. Just give and give and give and give and give. Folks, I would submit something to you that is a fact. And that is the church does a lot more giving, both preaching on and acting on the giving scriptures than the Jews have ever thought about doing. Now, if we stop right here, I've just hurt my church offerings. And that's not my purpose. But there's got to be something more. There's got to be something else. And there is. See, the Jews have a mindset. The Jews have a mindset that they understand and their attitude and and approach and understanding about giving 
is totally different than the churches. And theirs works. Now, don't get me wrong. Giving works too. I gave myself out of trouble. I was in financial mess when I came to the knowledge of the word. And I acted on those scriptures and acted on them in faith. And God blessed me and blessed me and blessed me. But there's still something more. Let me show you. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 4. I've done, throughout the years, I've done a lot of uh, studying where I don't, want to say, I don't want to say I've studied Judaism because I really haven't. But I have done a lot of studying on uh, Jewish teachings. And the Lord really dealt with my heart here not too long ago about picking up some things that, uh, that I'd laid down many years back and, and going after them again, reviewing the notes and so forth. And boy, when I did, it seems like something just took off on the inside of me. And I went deeper than I did before in the study and some of the research. And, uh, and I'm seeing some different things that I've ever seen. Now, in Genesis chapter 4 is the, stu- the story of Cain and Abel. You know the story of Cain and Abel? How many of you have heard the story of Cain and Abel preached in church or taught in church some way or another? Has anybody not heard it? Anybody not know the story of Cain and Abel? Okay. Very simply. Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's two children. Cain was the oldest. Abel is the youngest. Uh, Abel was uh, a shepherd. He took care of flocks. Cain was a farmer. God commanded, as was passed down through the instruction of Adam and Eve, we guess, he commanded them to bring a sacrifice. And so they brought a sacrifice. Well, Abel's sacrifice was the kind of sacrifice that God commanded them to bring. It was a, it was an offering of, of a sacrifice, uh, a sacrificial lamb type thing. Blood was offered. Cain brought what he grew in the field. He didn't want to go to his brother or anybody else to get a, to trade for or barter for an animal to kill. So he just brought the crops. Well, God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. Now, what was wrong with Cain's crops? Not a thing in the world. But it just wasn't the type of sacrifice that God requires. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You can't get blood out of vegetables. So therefore, God did not accept the sacrifice. And Cain got mad about it. He got upset and God said, what are you mad about? I told you what to do. Now, the church teaches this from a standpoint of obedience to God's word. It's not through the work of your hands. Cain's attitude must have been or perhaps had been something like, well, what I grow is just as good as the the animals that Abel raises, you know, so why should I have to go to him for, for something else? And, you know, you can imagine all kinds of things in that. Who knows for sure? But at any rate, God said, there's no reason, Cain, for you to be upset that I don't accept your sacrifice. I told you the kind of sacrifice that is acceptable. If you do what I tell you to do, then you accept it. If you don't, then you're not. It's not my fault. You're the one that chose to do it your own way. And so we teach from a standpoint of obedience to God's word. It's not because of the work of your hands. It's because of faith and, and accepting the, the commandment of God and so forth. Well, Cain talks to his brother. They have some kind of discussion we don't know what it is about but they have some kind of discussion and Cain kills Abel now the the Hebrew words it doesn't bring it out in the in the English but if you look up the Hebrew words that are used the Hebrew language is used Cain sacrificed Abel the action implies okay God you're going to require a blood sacrifice I'll give you one there's his brother well as a result God comes and 
and discovers Cain, uncovers his sin. He knew what was going on all along. He uncovers his sin and, and uh, tells him that there's a curse upon him and so forth. And Cain winds up going away and taking his, his stuff to another place. Now, that's the, that's the Christian story of Cain and Abel. One thing I've found about Judaism throughout the years, and, and it's, it's true no matter what source I go to, to find out Judaic teachings. Uh, and, and I'm particularly interested in the ancient rabbis, the ancient teachings. Those are the ones that have stuck around with the Jews for thousands of years and, and, uh, and, and interest me the most. I'm not too interested in what a, uh, a young rabbi says today. But I am very interested in the way that these things were taught because according to the tradition of the Jews, many things that Moses talked to God about that were not written down were passed down orally and spoken uh, from generation to generation through the rabbis. So I'm, I'm interested about some of that stuff. There's, uh, there have been a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the things that I've learned is the Jews have, have virtually no, I don't want to say none at all, but they have virtually no emphasis or understanding of spiritual things. In other words, what I mean by that is this. They treat God like he's a man. Now, I can understand why they would. Because really they're doing the same thing that Abraham did when God spoke to him in the beginning. Abraham talked to God like he was a man. God dealt with Abraham on a human level, not a spiritual level. God didn't talk to Abraham about the, the, the unrighteousness of his condition. He very simply talked to him in natural terms. If you, t- if you go where I tell you to go and obey what I tell you to do, then I'll bless you and I'll make you rich and I'll give you a family. And so we get kind of surprised, we meaning the church, because the church is, the, is we spiritualize everything. And in many cases, we spiritualize it to such a degree that we don't do anything. The Jews are just the opposite. They don't spiritualize anything and do everything. And it works. Let me tell you the, Judy, the, the, the Jews' story of Cain and Abel. Chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse uh, 8. This is after the sacrifice has been rejected. Notice it says in verse 8, this is after God talks to Cain, and Cain talked with Abel his brother. Now why would the Bible tell us that Cain talked with Abel his brother? Now here's something that the Jews do. If the Jews see something in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew language is, is in, in one way it's really difficult to, uh, to convey the, the, the things of God, and on the other hand, it's one of the most expressive languages known to mankind. And something else I've learned about Judaism and, and, uh, and Hebrew particularly, there's a lot more to meaning than what you can discern and, and read out of the Strong's Concordance. Because when I read in the Concordance what one word means and then read some things that the, that the ancient rabbis have taught about the meaning of the word, it's like, well, what good is the Concordance? And there's a lot of things about Judaism and about the Hebrew language that, that are that way. Well, one of the things about Hebrew is that when the Jews, the rabbis, I mean, when the teachers come to a place where it doesn't tell what took place or describe what took place in in detail, they fill in the blanks. For example, it says, And Cain talked with Abel his brother. 
Well, what did they talk about? They've got a story for it. And here's how they come up with a story. The name Cain means acquisition. Acquisition. So here's the Jew's story of Cain and Abel. After the sacrifice was rejected, Cain's sacrifice was rejected, Cain talked to Abel. Well, what did Cain talk about? Well, his name's Cain. That has a meaning. And Hebrew names have great significance in their meanings. And since the name Cain means acquisition, Cain talked to his brother Abel and said, you know, mom and dad aren't going to live forever. And God gave the whole earth to them and we're going to inherit. And don't you ever forget, I'm the oldest one. Which means I get it all. And Abel responded, this is all the story of the Jews. Abel responded and said, no, 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 that's not the way God wanted it to be. We're supposed to divide in half. Now, folks, half the world's pretty good. I mean, that's not bad. But Cain didn't like his math, Abel's math, and so he killed him. And so God comes down and and pronounces the curse upon him and and places the mark upon him. And notice it goes on a little bit further, and it says, uh, what do we want to pick up? Verse 16, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and, and bare Enoch. Now, here's the story of Cain and Abel for the Jews. And remember, everything about the, for the Jews, everything is literal. Now, what they know literally is that God promised them a natural blessing of wealth. The Jews have no problem with the words wealth and riches. None. Now, the church gets all hinky about them. But but the reason for that is because the church has a different mindset than the Jews do. The Jews recognize that wealth and wealth creation is good and is of God. The church, by and large, thinks, well, yeah, I do believe for God to meet my needs, but we don't want to get greedy. And as a result, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself. But in my opinion, there's a lot of the same mindset of the church trying to get God to prosper them when they really don't believe, because of wrong thinking, they really don't believe that wealth is what God has in mind or intends. And if I'm wrong, I stand corrected. I'm perfectly willing to be corrected. But folks, I've examined this from every angle I know to examine from. And I, I know that, that people that are close to me, some of the statements that I've made about using the word rich. Does God want you to be rich? Yes, God wants you to be rich. Now, rich is a relative term. But even at that, it's almost like we have to define what rich means so that nobody thinks we're talking about too much. That doesn't seem to fit with what God told, uh, spoke to Moses about telling his people. I'll bless you on every hand, but not too much. No, we think, we the church thinks a whole lot differently than God spoke. So here's the deal. Cain wanted it all because he's the acquisitioner. That's what his name means, his acquisition. He's the one trying to hoard everything. His idea is to own the world and have nobody else to be a competitor, nobody else to be an adversary, nobody else to have any possessions whatsoever. That's the way that it ought to be. So he slew Abel, his brother. After he finds out 
after God discovers him, uncovers what he did, spoke to him, places the mark upon him, he had to leave. What did he leave? He left his inheritance. And then he went to a city or went to a certain place, it said, and he bare a son and his name was Enoch. You know what the name Enoch means? Now, if you look it up in the concordance, you won't find this. But here's what the Jewish rabbis say the name Enoch means. Now educated. So here's a story from the Jewish perspective. Cain learned that one person owning everything is not God's plan. So what did he do? Notice the next part of the verse. Where was it? Uh, in verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch and he builded a city. What does Cain do? He builds a city. You know why? Because what he learned is that wealth, acquisition, riches, the blessing of Abraham has to be connected with other people. You can't have wealth. You can't have wealth creation without a connection between you and other people. Now, here's how the Jews make that connectivity. They say that the whole universe is God's display of connectedness. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? That means the earth, the physical, and the spiritual are connected. That's as spiritual love as I've ever seen the Jews get. The spiritual and the physical are connected because God made the heavens and the earth. So how does everything connect? Well, modern science has identified 92 basic elements. They've come up with another 30 or so that, that if you tweak scientifically and so forth or, or will exist and last for a little while, but then within a few seconds they'll convert back to the basic 92 elements. But very few of those 92 elements are used or useful standing alone. Salt is really important to our bodies and to our lives. What is it made from? It's made from sodium and chlorine. Sodium is toxic. Chlorine is poisonous. But you put them together and it becomes something that represents holiness and life. The air that we breathe is a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. We don't breathe pure oxygen. Wouldn't be good for us all the time. We don't breathe pure nitrogen. That would kill us. But put them together and we exist and live on air. The water we drink that's necessary for our bodies to function. It's a combination of hydrogen and oxygen. Folks, it goes even further when it comes to the buildings and, and things like that. Man has developed cement. Cement, when you mix it with, gra uh, with uh, gravel and sand and stuff like that, makes concrete. Concrete is really, really strong. It'll hold up under a lot of pressure because its compression strength is high. But it'll crack and crumble because its tension strength is low. And so concrete is worthless to be used for any period of time, an extended period of time in construction. But you know what they found out? They found out that if you reinforce it with steel, then it'll last forever. You know why? Because steel's compression strength is real small, but its tension strength is great. So you've got two opposites that work hand in hand to create the building blocks for everything that we know of in the world we live in. You know what else is interesting about that? Steel and concrete have exactly the same response to heat and cold. They expand at the same exact rate and contract at the same exact rate. 
So the Jews take this information and they say the world is full of stuff that when combined with other stuff, connected with other things, other elements, other products, create a vast reservoir of wealth in the world. And that's the way they choose to live. One of the things that they say about the nation of Israel is one of the reasons that their wealth has been so pronounced throughout the the history of the the Jewish people is because their nation is so small that everybody knows each other. Now, that's not literally true. But compared to other nations, they're certainly the smallest thing out there. Their interest is to be connected because they know that the key to wealth is connectedness. Now, folks, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6. I'm running out of time here, and I didn't get nearly where I thought I might go with this. Or not as far, anyway. But maybe we'll just introduce it, and then I don't know what we'll do. We'll we'll go as far as we feel we need to. Verse of Scripture that everybody's going to know. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, after having just spoken about the birds of the air, that they don't grow anything, God feeds them. The lilies of the field, they don't worry about what they wear and nothing's as pretty as them. He goes on to say in verse 31, he said, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the world seek. Gentiles is a representation of the world. This is what the world seeks or pursues. The world pursues wealth. The world pursues wealth. Now, remember what we just read over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 2. It says, if you'll hearken and diligently to, to keep the commandments of the Lord, all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. He did not say you shall pursue the blessings. He said that you pursue the doing of the word, keeping of the commandments, and the blessings will catch you from behind. Notice the contrast with the world. The world seeks after the wealth. The world seeks after the wealth, and in many cases they obtain it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it, Proverbs 10.22 says. Which means that there is a wealth, a wealth of the world, the world's way of getting and obtaining wealth that there's sorrow attached to. But that's not God's way. So he says that all these things do the Gentiles or does the world seek after. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Please notice God does not meet your need based on the need, the presence of that need. God does, uh, Jesus is not saying, God knows you need this stuff, so just don't worry. No, he said, God knows you need this stuff, so here's the instruction. What's the instruction? Verse 33. Now, folks, please understand, the Jews don't believe any of this because it came from Jesus. But they operate on the principle. What Jesus is saying is an Old Testament principle that we just read in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2. Hearken diligently unto the commandments of God, and all these blessings shall overtake you. Here's how Jesus said it when he was here on the earth. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I would submit to you folks that the church, particularly those of us that believe in financial well-being and the complete work of Jesus on the cross, do a thousand million trillion time better job 
of seeking after doing the word of God, walking in the commandment of love, than the Jews could ever attain to. Well, then why aren't we the ones that are known throughout the world as having the wealth? Got to be a missing piece. Jesus said it this way. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What does that mean? Well, the prosperity preachers preach, give, 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 and God will bless you. They'll use scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, properly, accurate. Cast your bread on the water and it'll return after many days. We sing songs about this stuff. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. All those things are true. But there's got to be a missing piece when the Jews who don't know beans about the kingdom of God, as we understand, because of being made in the, recreated in the image of God through the new birth. When they don't know beans about what we know, but the material blessings of Abraham are working better for them than, they are, than it is for the church, there's got to be a missing piece. There's got to be a mindset that they've got that we don't understand. You see where I'm coming from? And, and I've got to tell you, I am not going to give up till I get it. I'm just not. If God didn't want me to know, then he shouldn't have showed me. Because now I'm hot on the trail. Well, here's the deal. The the title of tonight's message is Why Giving Works. Giving does work. But do you know why it works? Because giving connects you to other people. And that's the part that the church doesn't understand. That's the part the church doesn't get. Here's what any and all of us that are parents have found out. If you want to do something for me that I appreciate the most, don't try to give me something. Do something for my kids. I'll appreciate what's done for my kids more than I'll appreciate something done for me. Because I care more about my kids than I care about myself. Well, then therefore, What would seeking the kingdom of God be about? Here's the way one rabbi says it. One rabbi says, ancient rabbi says this, and there's some others that quote him quite frequently in uh, modern times. But one ancient rabbi said this. He said, it's the will of God for each of us to be obsessively preoccupied with serving his other children. To serve them by meeting their needs and their desires. Now let me ask you a question. If somebody took that attitude towards your kids and helped them when they needed help, would that mean anything to you? Of course it would. Why would it mean something to us? Because we're good parents. How many times does Jesus use the example, if you then being evil, natural, carnal parents know how to do good things for your children... Be good parents to your children. How much more shall your heavenly father do for for them that love him? In other words, the Jews get this. Here's something. Here's a mindset that the Jews have that the church doesn't seem to get. And that is the Jews recognize that the creation of wealth comes down to the connectedness that you have with other people. Now that connection... It's primarily through your work because that's where you spend the majority of your time in life. Your work represents your life. 
And folks, that's true. We may not want to admit it because we want to spiritualize things, but that's absolutely the truth. You are what you do because it represents the majority of your life. Now, some people want to get super spiritual and say, well, no, I just make a living at my job. But the real me is what I get to do with my free time and and, and hogwash. You are what you do. You may not be committed to what you do to realize that it's you, but you are what you do. And the money you make from what you do is the proof of the goods and services that you provided for somebody else. Now, here's where the church messes up, my opinion. But it seems to me that the church thinks anything that benefits you cannot be morally, intrinsically and morally good by nature. Therefore, we want to volunteer. We want to give in ways that we can't possibly get back so that then we'll feel good about ourselves. Then we'll feel like we've done something upstanding. We'll feel like we've done something spiritual. But folks, the economic system that God has developed, if Jesus knew what he was talking about, is that money and resources is the reward for doing the right thing. Now tell me how that does not fit by definition of what Jesus said in Mark in Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, monetary things, provisional things, goods, resources shall be added unto you. Is he not saying that material possessions is the return that he has designed that God has set up as the system For doing good, which he identifies as seeking first the kingdom of God. The Jews recognize that seeking first the kingdom of God means helping, serving, and providing for the needs of God's children. Does this make any sense to anybody? If I'm selling shoes and you're buying shoes, we have entered into an agreement based solely on our, on our wills. It's my will to sell shoes, to make a profit. It's your will to buy my shoes or whatever else I'm selling. If I provide a service to you that you consider to be of value, you return to me wealth. And that wealth, whether I sold something, whether I provided a service, that wealth is the proof that I'm doing something valuable with my life to connect with you. The Jews get that. The Jews realize that giving it... By the way, do you know what the Hebrew word for tithing is? Now, you won't find this in concordance, but this is what the ancient rabbis say. The, 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 the word that's translated tithing and charity. Those are both the same word in the Hebrew. You know what that word means? It means wealth. You know why? Here's again, here's a, a mistake the church makes. The church will go out of its way saying, now, Lord, we don't give to get. The Jews say, forget that. That's exactly why we're giving, because we know how the system works. 
Jesus said it, give and it'll be given unto you. He didn't say wait till you get and then give. He said give first. The Jews understand this is the way the system works and they don't apologize for it. And the church does. I've been guilty of it. You probably heard me say things like that in prayers. Those days are over. If you ever hear me say it again, you'll hear me say, scratch that last line, Lord. Because the Jews understand. The Jews take it so far as to tithe in advance. That's what first fruits is all about. They tithe in advance on what they want to make. It works. Because of the mindset. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. They don't know anything about faith like you do. They don't know faith is of the heart. They don't know it's expressed through the words of your mouth. They haven't gotten that since they messed out on going into the promised land in Numbers chapter 13. But they do understand the principle. They understand that when you give, it connects you with somebody. It changes the way you feel about yourself and it changes the way you feel about somebody else. Do you know who you care more about? The person that gives to you or the person you give to? The person you give to. It connects you with them. It creates a bond. It creates a connection. To where now all of a sudden you care more for them. Now let me show you something else that the church is, is, uh, is, has... Uh, I don't have time. Well, I'm going to anyway. <laughs> give, me, give me just a couple of minutes, all right? Let's say you've got a loved one that's on hard times, falling on hard times. And boy, I mean, they're just, if without somebody to help, they can't make it. And they come to you for advice and they say, listen, I've had two people offer to help me. I need your advice on which one to, to accept. One is Brother Jim over here. And you know what a kind-hearted guy he is. He was willing to sacrifice of, of the little bit of income that he has to give me $100. Now, you know how he is. He just cares for the poor. He just loves everybody. So he wants to help. I can, only, I can only accept help from one of these two. Which one do I accept? The other is the rich guy that's in church. You know him. He makes all kinds of money. He's got plenty of money. He's got a system or a program set up to where he offers people in situations like I'm in $1,000. And, and it doesn't cost him anything. I mean, you know, he's got plenty of money, so it wouldn't hurt him anyway. But he's worked out some kind of tax loophole so that he gets 1000 $1,100 back on tax credits for every $1,000 that he gives out. So he really benefits from this. Now, you know him. He doesn't care about anybody. Who should I accept help from? Who are you going to tell him to take the help from? Get the 1000 bucks, Because the $1,000 is what you need to fix your problem. It's a lack of resources and finances that you have, and that will help meet that need. Now, which one is doing the more good? The guy with $100 or the guy with $1,000? I didn't ask who's a better human being. See how the church judges things? Well, it wouldn't be right to, to not care and have it set up to where you get a benefit from giving like that. Says who? Who's doing more good? The $1,000 guy. Yeah, but he doesn't care as much. Show me in the Bible where it says God will reward you for what you care about. 
Show me anywhere in the Bible that says that God will honor you for your sympathies or even your intents. Now, the Bible says the doer is blessed in his deed. I don't care how you just dice this up. I don't care how you examine it. The guy that's doing the $1,000 worth of good for the poor, no matter what his attitude is, is doing more for the poor than the $100 guy with the good heart that scraped up what little bit he could. The Jews get this. The church sits back and will argue about it. Examine how they feel. I just don't know, Pastor. We could go even further. Who did more good for society? Exxon Oil or Mother Teresa? Exxon Oil. Halliburton. The dreaded evil oil companies. They're helping mankind keep things going. I bless Mother Teresa's heart. I'm glad for the, you know, how many people did she help? A thousand? Ten thousand? Even if it was a million, and I'm sure it's not, but even if it was a million, who still helped more people? The oil companies. You see how we try to, try to change things around? The Jews get this. And the Jews don't apologize for being the ones that everybody else considers to be the evil, money-hungry people. Because they know that wealth creation is the plan and the purpose of God. It's the system whereby he set this world up to operate under. When the church starts getting that, maybe we'll start operating the blessing of Abraham too. I've gone long enough. We'll quit here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that the blessing of Abraham is ours. Open our eyes, Lord, to exactly what Jesus has done for us. And how to obtain it. Show us, Lord, how to connect with other people so that we can create wealth. You've given us the power to get wealth. Help us to understand that it comes through connecting with other people. Help us to understand, Father, that every one of us is in business to provide a product, a good, or a service. Even if our only customer is our boss, the one that writes our paycheck. Help us, Father, to develop the kind of mindset whereby the wealth of the world will come into our hands. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.